Welcome. My name is Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two amazing, brilliant lawyers of the Murthy Law Firm team, Chris Drynan, who is uh, in our non-immigrant department, and Ashley Barbone, also in our non-immigrant department. For those of you who are not very familiar, Chris has over 14 years of immigration law experience, and he has worked in Boston and Las Vegas. Ashley's had several years of uh, experience both at Murthy Law Firm and before Murthy Law Firm working in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, they are just a part of this incredible team, and we're here today to discuss with you an overview of the different non-immigrant visa options that may be available in order for you as a business or as an employer to bring qualified foreign employees to work here. And we are discussing the temporary non-immigrant options. Uh, just to make it very clear, today's discussion, we're going to go over the most common non-immigrant options, not necessarily every single possible option, because for those of you who may not be familiar, there's a whole, whole what we call an alphabet list of non-immigrant options, starting from the A visa for diplomats and the B and then the C for crew and the D, you know, for certain vessels and E, etc. And it goes on through until the V visa. We're not going to discuss all 25 categories today, but we are going to focus on maybe about five or ten of the commonly asked options. So... Without further ado, let's get right to the crux of the questions. I know many of you are very familiar with the H option because that's what you do. Some of, your, some of you as employers process maybe the L ones more commonly rather than H's, and that's okay. But Chris, let's start with a brief, quick overview of the H1 option, and if an employer hasn't done a whole lot or has done them but doesn't really understand other than fill out the forms, what's really involved? Okay, H1B is one of the most common and most commonly used and also one of the best known visa classifications. Uh, an H-1B permits a U.S. employer to bring a foreign national to the United States uh, to perform duties in a specialty occupation. Now, the term specialty occupation is defined by the government uh, as a job that requires at least, uh, at least a bachelor's degree in a relevant field. Uh, most commonly, this is used for jobs like IT personnel, doctors, accountants, lawyers, um, but it is a flexible uh, definition, and jobs outside these common uh, occupations can certainly qualify for H-1B. Um, not every job will qualify mm -hmm. for H-1B. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, uh, we p will sometimes have problems with managerial jobs because uh, of longstanding uh, USCIS policy. It says that not all managerial jobs necessarily require a bachelor's degree. That's true, and that's a very good example because in general, whenever someone uses the word manager, they love it. They think, oh, perfect, let's deny this H-1 petition. So you want to be very, very careful when you use the term managerial. So, Ashley, what are the time frames, you know, for an H-1? We know about the three-year H, you know, one year, three years, six years, all kinds of rules. Okay. Well, generally, a person is eligible to remain in the U.S. in H-1B status for up to six years. Uh, each petition can be granted for a maximum of three years at a time. And we find with most ID jobs, they don't give you the full three years because of the end client letters, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They give you for six months or one year or two years at the most. Very few cases end up in consulting companies getting the full three years. Right, right. It's more common nowadays that they're shortening the validity periods. However, even if it's one year approvals, you're still eligible for that six years total. Mm -hmm. um, uh, also to remember that the six-year limit can be extended indefinitely if 
the person has applied for an employment-based green card and they meet certain other requirements, they can continue to extend their H-1B until their priority date becomes so the current. So one year or the three-year H-1 increments that we talk about? Or right. any, any increments of one to three years. Correct. Yes. Okay. Oh, also, one other thing is um, if an individual uses up their six years, they could depart the U.S. for one full year, and then they could get a whole new six years of right, eligibility. Right, or even if the person works only intermittently for less than six months a, uh, each year in the U.S., then the six-year, there's no six-year limit by law. You can keep coming in and out continuously. Okay, so let's come back to you, Chris, and figure out. I know that we sort of tend to sort of lean a lot of employers on this conference call today just will assume that, well, h one's what I get, but I know there are big advantages and big disadvantages. There certainly actually are. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very useful visas, but they do have uh, some, some disadvantages, which might be more of a problem for some employers than others. Mm -hmm. um, to file an H-1B, you first have to get what's called a labor condition application, or what we call an LCA, uh, from the Department of Labor. Um, now, to get this LCA, the employer has to certify that they'll pay at least the prevailing wage uh, for the occupation to this employee. And that's tied to the job qualifications and to the geographic location. Um, so when an employer says, hey, Chris, tell me what the prevailing wage is for this job, can you just look, look it up in two seconds? No. Normally not. Normally okay. not. Because it depends on what, what the employer requires for the job. Mm -hmm. If they require a master's degree, it's going to be a different wage than if they require a bachelor's degree. Um, but the most common problem with this is that it is tied into a geographic location. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if you're moving an employee who's got H-1B status, uh, normally you're going to have to require, you're going to have to file either an amended H-1B or, or a, a new LCA. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be very careful on this because uh, you're subjecting yourself to some pretty stringent regulations from the DOL on, on, in terms of H-1Bs. Um, those are both with regard to the wage and with regard to record keeping. Uh, you have to keep what's called a public access file, which has various information in it. We don't keep that public access file, as we see, unfortunately, very commonly. Um, there are some big fines for that. Mm -hmm. um, and really, employers have to be very careful on this stuff because uh, there can be some big fines and some big, uh, big problems if you ignore it. Uh, there was a recent decision from the Department of Labor uh, from an administrative law judge uh, awarding more than $160,000 in back wages uh, to a terminated H-1B employee just because the company had not notified the government that the employee had been terminated. so That's pretty scary, I guess. It is pretty scary, and that's a, that's a very big number. Um, another problem uh, with H-1Bs is that they're numerically limited. Uh, it's 85,000 visas per year, uh, and 20,000 of that is reserved to individuals who have at least received at least a master's degree from a U.S. university or above. Um, once the cap is reached, no more applications will be accepted. Um, now, right now, that's not a particular problem because the usage of H-1B numbers this year has been pretty low. Uh -huh. But in prior years, they've been gone the first day that you could file. Uh -huh. uh, and then they're gone for the rest of the year. So that so is a huge problem. it's punishment if the economy becomes better. You're punishing employers when we should be encouraging companies and employers from hiring the best and brightest talent from around the world. It's kind of ironic. And as the economy is weak, it's almost like we're rewarding the employers trying to get them to hire people from outside when we have unemployment in America. It's almost oxymoronish yeah. of the U.S. Uh, government and the U.S. policy to allow that. It's absolutely true. If the economy were in better shape, these H-1B visas would in all likelihood be gone by now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a final issue with H-1Bs is that they start October 1st each year. So if you have an employee who you need sooner than that, 
Um, normally, you're going to be out of luck. Year. So, for example, if an employer has found a fabulous employee and says, great, I'll file it, I'll pay an extra 1200 bucks, do premium processing, start tomorrow morning, the answer is sorry. No can do. Can do. October 1st is the earliest we can get you to start. Okay, so now that you have, and many of you are familiar with a lot of these issues, but I'm not sure if you were aware of that recent case with $160,000 in back wages, which is a little scary. But the whole idea, it seems like the Department of Labor and USCIS is how to scare employers and force them to comply with rules, which makes sense. So it's an, America is a nation of laws and rules, and we are, a, you know, we believe in the rule of law. But sometimes laws and rules have to make sense, and sometimes there's concern that some of these don't make a whole lot of sense. And many of you have struggled, I know, as employers in how to walk that fine line of following every rule, dotting every I, crossing every T, and making sure at the same time that your business continues to try and succeed and thrive uh, in a very, very difficult economy. Um, Let's, next, we're going to move to the L1s, which are, as many of you may know, an L1 is for multinational corporations. Um, it, there are two different kinds of L1s, the L1A and the L1B. The L1A is for executives and managers, and the L1B is for workers who have specialized knowledge. Remember, specialized knowledge is different from H1B specialty occupations, L1s are reserved for U.S. businesses which have a qualifying relationship to a foreign entity or foreign company, like a parent, a subsidiary, an affiliate, a branch, etc., even a joint venture. Each of these relationships um, and the, has a legal definition that we're not going to have the time to focus in this teleconference, but it's important for you to know that there needs to be this sort of legal relationship of parent, subsidiary, affiliate, branch, etc., that must ex exist in order for the person to be able to qualify for the L1. So, Ashley, can you discuss a little bit briefly the criteria for both L1s, regular and individual cases, and for blanket L1s? Sure. So the potential L-1 worker must have worked for the foreign company for at least one year in the three-year period preceding the filing of the L-1 petition, and this must have been in either a managerial, executive, or specialized knowledge capacity. Um, certain multinational companies that regularly are transferring employees to the U.S. may be eligible to file a blanket L-1 petition, which can enhance the efficiency for using the L-1 category. A blanket petition is used to obtain a pre-approval of a corporate relationship from the USCIS that qualifies for the purpose of the L-1 application. And once the blanket petition is approved, employees only need then to apply directly at the U.S. consulate abroad for their L-1 visas. They don't have to file anything directly with the USCIS. There are specific requirements to file the L-1 blanket petition, and which generally relates to the size and the income of the business, as well as how many individual petitions they've previously filed. Yeah, it's a wonderful option if it's available. Of course, they are looking at it closely because, again, like the H1s, there's a fear that there's abuse and misuse of the system by many employers. But filing the blanket can save a lot of time and money because you can save thousands of dollars in each filing by doing a blanket L1 instead of an individual H1 for every single employee. Um, Okay. And Chris, I know we've been watching in the media and in the newspapers, you know, hearing about companies like Tata Infosys and other large employers um, where the whole issue 
is um, there's a whole issue of H1 in, you know, the, the H1 in lieu of, um, the, the B1 in lieu of H1, but that's a separate issue. We first want to focus, I guess, on the kinds of issues that are, because USCIS has become more increasingly demanding of L1A and L1B petitions. Can you go over a little bit on some of that? Well, that's, that's absolutely true, Sheila. They've become uh, more demanding in both of these categories. Um, I can remember when I first started doing this, L1As were relatively easy to get approved. Uh, not the case anymore, particularly for smaller companies. Um, it's become pretty much commonplace to get very extensive uh, requests for evidence, what we call RFEs, uh, from the government when you file one of these. Uh, for L1As, normally they want very, very uh, detailed proof that this person is actually going to be in an executive or managerial position, um, as opposed to doing actual productive duties related to the business. Um, if you're a manager, normally you should be managing only people who have bachelor's degrees or, or who are professionals. Um, and in a, in a small company, that's just a problem, because typically even a manager or an, exec or an executive in a small company is going to do a lot of different things. And at this point in time, USCIS just does not typically accept that. Um, in regard to specialized knowledge L1s or L1Bs, um, we're also having uh, very extensive uh, requests for evidence, uh, very high standard being applied uh, both by USCIS and by the Department of State. Um, you have to show that this person really has special knowledge of the company's uh, products, services, or knowledge of the corporate practices. Um, and it's become uh, much more difficult to win approval of these than it used to be. Um, this is not required to be proprietary knowledge, but sometimes it seems like that's the standard that is being applied. Um, another issue here was uh, a law that was passed in 2004 that made it very difficult to put L1Bs at locations that are not owned by, by the petitioning company. Um, so in contractual relationships, as is frequently seen in, in H1Bs, uh, it's a bit more complicated for L1Bs. Yeah, they seem to be tightening down and restricting at every possible opportunity, uh, squeezing harder and harder and harder the employers who are bringing in foreign nationals. And, and Ashley, can I have you quickly go over again, like the H1s, the time frames, um, you know, and, and, and what are the possible extensions? Sure. The L1 classification, the L1A, excuse me, is limited to a seven years of maximum stay, and L1B is limited to five years total. Um, each application can be for a maximum of three years at a time. And there are special provi provisions for L1As that are coming over to open a new office in the U.S., and the, f the initial petition is only approved for one year. And then after the one year, they again have to show it. And it's very difficult, as, as Chris was just saying, with smaller employers where they really end up denying it. And after some a company or an individual has... Uh, made an initial investment of a few hundred thousand dollars to be told you need to pack up and leave. It's it's like devastating. I mean, it's your lifetime savings gone mm -hmm. down the drain. Mm -hmm. What about extensions? After like so H1, are the extensions that are available? No, unlike H1B, there is no uh, basis to uh, extend beyond the seven-year or five-year limit. And so if they do want to stay in the U.S., they have to think about changing to H1B. They're switching and if they can, but after seven years, you can't switch no. to H. So you would have to just file the green card or be plan prepared to pack your bags and leave the country for a year. Right, and, and once the green card process was at a certain stage, they might be able to come in on H-1B right. at that point. Okay, so, so we've gone over the H-1 and L-1, as you just heard. 
The other option, if your employee is a citizen or national of Canada or Mexico, as many of you are aware, there's something called the TN, which is the trade NAFTA, which is available for citizens under the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, um, to come in on a TN. And TN has huge advantages over the HRDL because you don't have to get the petition and file it, and it's sort of like a blanket L1, but even nicer because you don't even have to file a blanket petition. So, Chris, will you just briefly go over the TN uh, uh, options available for Canadians and Mexicans? Yes, Sheila. TN is a very, very useful visa. Uh, no, no numerical limit, unlike the H-1B. Uh, no, no cap on TNs. It's for professionals um, who are engaged in, a certain, in certain occupations, and there is a list of occupations who qualify for the TN. Um, most of these are scientific, scientific professionals, but not all. Um, the person has to pe uh, must possess a very uh, spe uh, specified degrees or licenses, and that's all uh, very well defined, and they're appropriate to whatever profession they're coming to do. Um, and with the exception of the occupation of management consultant, all TNs must also have job offers from U.S. employers. So not that different from the other ones, we, the other visa classifications we've talked about in that regard. Uh, TNs normally are granted in one-year increments. Actually, that was the old law. I think now it's three years. Uh, it used to be one year, I think, a few uh, years ago, and then they changed it a couple of years ago, okay. I believe. Yeah, and there's no initial filing with USCIS. Uh, you, you file at the port of entry uh, for Canadians or the consulate for Mexican citizens. Um, one thing that is an important distinction between the H-1B and the L-1 and the TN relates to what's called dual intent. Um, People who have H-1Bs or L-1s are allowed to simultaneously apply for green cards without any, any complications to their status. Uh, in contrast, a TN visa holder doesn't have that benefit. Um, a person in TN status may endanger that status if they file a green card application. And the word, the key, the crux of the word is keys may because it's not automatic. There's lots and lots of gray area on this. Uh, but it's not as clean cut and doesn't enjoy, as Chris just explained, clean dual intent. But there's... I think memos out there from the old legacy INS, the predecessor of the USCIS, telling uh, employers that and individuals that maybe we are still allowed to come in and out mm -hmm. even after filing an I-140 petition, but there are risks, and at the airport or the port of entry or the land border, they can actually turn and send you back. It can happen. Uh, it can it happen. could very well happen. So, so now we talked about the the option, the similar to H1s for Canadians and Mexicans. What about for citizens or nationals of Chile and Singapore, Ashley? What's their option and how does that work? Sure. The, another alternative to the H-1B is the H-1B-1, which is uh, specifically for nationals of Chile and Singapore. This uh, category, which is often overlooked, was created by the free trade agreements that were signed by these countries back in 2003. Um, there are uh, numerical limits that have been carved out of the 65,000 cap for the H-1B, they've taken some numbers for, for the H-1B-1 category. And basically, 1,400 visa numbers are available for Chileans, and 5,400 are set aside for nationals of Singapore. And despite the relatively no, low numbers, this category has never been used to its full potential, and most of the visas, leftover visas, are added back into the pool of H-1B visas every year. Into the general 65,000 Six quota. Right. Okay. Or 85,000 visas. The requirements for the H-1B-1 category are, the sim are identical to the H-1B category. In addition, the H-1B-1 classification 
is available to certain professionals who may not possess a post-secondary degree or the equivalent, but who will engage in the profession of either an agricultural manager, a physical therapist, those are set aside for nationals of Chile, or disaster relief claims adjusters or management consultants. And those uh, occupations are available for either nationals of Chile or Singapore. Um, similar to the TN visa, which is for the Canadian and Mexican citizens, one advantage of the H-1B-1 category is that they don't need to first obtain the H-1B petition approval from USCIS. Instead, they can apply directly for the visa at the U.S. consulate overseas. However, one disadvantage, like the TN classification, is that H-1B-1s are not permitted to apply for green cards. Um, they have a non-immigrant intent. Only. Right, so the only H-1B and H-L-1s can enjoy clean dual intent, so TNs and H-1B-1s cannot enjoy it, so there's kind of the temptation to switch then back right. to, and since the, but, but they're very, very similar, but the big advantage is, again, not having to apply for a petition, spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees and filing fees and processing fees, but can right away apply for the visa at the consulate. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so we've gone over the different variations and options of HL, H1B1, and TN, and now we'll touch briefly upon what we call the O1. O1, think of the word outstanding, and it's easy to remember the O. It's for individuals with extraordinary ability. It's very, very similar to the EB11 or EB1C um, for aliens of exceptional ability. Um, it is a possible alternative to H1B, especially if the, quote, the full six years are over. A lot of medical doctors sometimes qualify for the O1 category, or if a person is like a researcher, a professor, a scholar, faculty members, public, you know, if you have Nobel Prize or really some amazing international awards. Um, in general, an O1 requires the employer to file the petition and to show that this person that they're trying to sponsor has extraordinary ability in the sciences in arts, in education, business, or athletics. It can be any one of these and has demonstrated the, the extraordinary ability by sustained national or international acclaim. Very high standard. Um, and to prove the extraordinary ability for O1 other than arts will require the receipt of a major internationally recognized prize, as I just said, like the Nobel Prize, or at least three of the other criteria which is listed in the law. And these criteria, as some of you may be aware, are receipt of other lesser-known national or international awards, membership in organizations that require outstanding achievement. So if your employee just paid to join the Institute of Electrical Engineers, sorry, it won't apply. They have to be invited to join a very prestigious um, organization. And they have to have and not and, it's three out of ten criteria, published materials about the foreign national in major trade journals or in professional journals. They have to be judging the work of others, so reviewers, judges uh, would work. And you need to show original scientific or scholarly work of major significance, authoring scholarly work, or employment at an organization with a distinguished reputation or receipt of a high salary in relationship to others in the field. And I say or because it's not all ors. As I said, minimum three out of ten 
Obviously, if you can show all 10 out of 10 and in a high caliber, you have a stand a better chance. There's been a lot of debate. The USCIS has been giving a hard time. There's a case called the Kazarian case, which actually resulted in many. The USCIS has been denying many of these cases. So even when your employee is brilliant, outstanding, extraordinary, the government says, you're very brilliant and we think you're smart and we think you're awesome. But guess what? You're not good enough to be an outstanding person or to get the EB-11. So um, far fewer people obviously can qualify for this, for the H1, uh, for the O1 compared to the H1B. But the good thing is that there's no cap or limitation. There's no prevailing wage directly that applies like with the H1B. And a lot of international scholars, J1 exchange visitors, medical doctors, who may be subject to the two-year home residency requirement, uh, would be eligible to go abroad at a consulate and apply for the O-1 without obtaining the waiver of the two-year home residency requirement, which is why it's very, very tempting for people who are eligible to try for the O-1. So besides the O, we have other classifications that we think it's very useful for you as employers to kind of keep at the back of your mind, depending on what kind of an employer or business you have. So for example, uh, if you are an owner of a sports team, or your sports franchise, you're a big woohoo, Chris. What are the options that they have <laughs> to consider? Well, when we talk about sports teams or athletes, we're normally talking about a P visa. Um, mm -hmm. And P visas, uh, although they're, they're associated with athletes, are not entirely restricted to athletes. Uh, there are really three varieties of Ps. Uh, P1 uh, is available to athletes either in individual sports or, or who are parts of groups or teams that are internationally recognized. Um, they're also, P1s are also available to people who perform as part of an internationally recognized entertainment group, uh, so group performers. Um, and for our purposes here, internationally recognized normally means that the group or individual uh, has received some acclaim in more than one country. And when you're filing one of these, you generally do that through news articles or, or awards. Uh, there's also a P-2 visa, uh, which is available to artists or entertainers who are part of an organized uh, cultural exchange program between a U.S. organization uh, and a similar foreign organization. And also P-3 visas, uh, which are available to individuals who are entering the U.S. Uh, to perform, to teach, or to coach in a culturally, culturally unique uh, program. And actually, we've obtained approvals in almost all of these, but certainly I remember like a world-famous Kathak dancer, a very complicated standing on plates and holding lamps and doing world famous, uh, you know, dancers of very cultural, you know, Bharatanatyam dancers, different kinds of uh, very culturally unique uh, and, and professional athletes and entertainers and artists. They're, they're very exciting. And very commonly on pace. Um, and also in these, in these P categories, uh, people who are essential support personnel, so uh, stage technicians or, or coaches in some instances, uh, they can get visas in the same categories as, as the performer athlete to enter the U.S. Um, and also the families of these applicants can be granted P-4 visas. They'd be allowed to stay in the U.S. for the same duration as the, as the primary applicant. Okay, wonderful. So just something, again, we're touching upon all of these to give you guys idea uh, to consider, uh, you know, depending on the situation and depending on what you're planning to do. Um, we have a catch-all one with the B-1 visitors for business, which I'm sure some of you are familiar. You probably, most people have all come into the U.S. at least for the first time um, as B-1, um, you know, for business. 
um, and, and I'll have you, Ashley, go over a little bit of what are the different, you know, scenarios under which a company or an employer or business can try to process somebody for the B-1. Sure, Sheila. So the B-1 status is sometimes used as an alternative business visa, but there are very strict limits on, on its use. Um, it can be very useful for a business person who needs to, say, travel to the U.S. on very short notice to attend a meeting or a conference. Uh, an individual in B-1 status, however, cannot engage in local work in the U.S. Um, very limited exception is if you can obtain the B-1 visa to install or re repair equipment in connection with a specific contract to sell that equipment, and the service was part of the terms of the sale, uh, usually in in requiring technical experts to oversee the installation in the U.S., um, this exception does not apply to the sale of services, however. It's very critical that the applicants prepare for their B-1 visa interview ahead of time, and ensuring that the B-1 visa issued is annotated with the reason for travel also can facilitate entry into the United States. Entry to the U.S. with the B-1 visa entails some added risks because the Customs and Border Protection officials that inspect visitors at the port of entry may not understand that the foreign national, what his intended activities are, and that that does fall within the scope of the B-1 business visa. Okay. Um, the category is sometimes available. Um, another category is called B-1 in lieu of H-1B, and it's sort of a hybrid of the H-1B, B-1. Um, and that's the one we just talked about with the whole media attention and problems and the Grassley Amendment exactly. and stuff. So this classification does permit a foreign employee to perform some H-1B type duties while in the U.S. for a very short period of time. Again, as long as that person's salary is coming entirely from the foreign employer. And this B-1 in lieu of H-1B can be very useful for a foreign company that maybe doesn't have a U.S. subsidiary uh, and thus would be unable to file an H-1B or another, another type of non-immigrant visa. However, um, again, it's a very controversial classification. On, on the L1, you mean? Potentially the L1A exactly. or the uh, Or any other classification like the H1B, Right, etc. they don't have a qualifying relationship with a U.S. company. Right. Um, however, again, it's very controversial right now um, mm -hmm. as a result of the, uh -huh. the IT company, and, um, you know, they're, they're scrutinizing it more for potential misuse. And I think misuse. one of the, the amendment is planning to eliminate the whole thing because they're concerned about just people coming in and taking away jobs without going through the H-1 prevailing wage requirements and all of that. So B-1 uh, visitors are possible. You know, it's used for medical treatment. It's used for attending meetings, conferences, to, you know, meet with prospective clients. But if you're sitting at a desk and working, the risk of being denied is very, very high, high both at the consulate, but even if you're able to get the visa at the consulate, uh, the CBP, the Customs and Border Protection that Ashley just mentioned, can actually put you back on the plane and either expeditedly remove you or you can withdraw your request to be admitted to the U.S. Uh, if they threaten to revoke your visa or, you know, start an expedited removal slash deportation against you. Okay, so I know we wanted to touch briefly also on something called the E-1, E-2, which is for treaty traders and treaty investors. And Chris will go over that, uh, but I just w thought, thought I would mention, and I know Chris said he would um, discuss it. Basically, the reason I guess it's not very popular with a lot of our clients is because India, you have to be a member and have an agreement of treaty, trade, or commerce, or friendship between the United States and the particular foreign country. But India has no treaty of trade or commerce 
with the United States, which is why the E1-E2 is not an option, but it's available for other countries, for example, like the United Kingdom or Australia or even Pakistan and Bangladesh sometimes, but not for India, uh, which is a shame. Maybe the U.S. government, our Indian diplomats need to use a little more um, influence there in Washington, D.C. to get this Treaty of Trade and Commerce signed between the U.S. and India. But we think it's important for you to, for us to discuss it because not all of your employees are obviously nationals of India, though I understand many of them may be. So if they're citizens of other countries, uh, a lot of times the E1, E2 treaty trader and treaty investor option should be considered before you think, oh, God, I can't bring this person into the U.S. at all. So, Chris, can you just explain a little bit what the uh, criteria and uh, requirements are? Sure, Sheila. Uh, E1s and E2s are, are very similar. Uh, as you were, were saying, they're based on treaties that the United States has with uh, other countries. We have lots of treaties. Uh, they can be called uh, treaties of commerce and navigation or free trade treaties or bilateral investment treaties. Um, lots of different names for these, but they basically accomplish the same thing. Um, an E1 is for people who are coming to the U.S. Uh, to carry on trade in goods or services. Uh, the E2 is used for coming to the U.S. to invest uh, capital and to direct to develop the operations of a, a business here in the U.S. by investing that money. Um, you can qualify as a principal trader or investor, um, or you can be an employee of a company that's a trader or investor. Um, one thing to remember is that uh, all these uh, entities and people have to have the treaty country nationality. And there are some very uh, specific rules for determining the nationality of a company. Um, but they do have to have the nationality of that treaty company. Um, now, these, these visas are intended for executives, managers, and people with skills and experience that is essential to the success of the operation. Um, as with uh, O1s, uh, there's no numerical limit on the E category, and an additional benefit of uh, E1 or E2 status is that dependents are eligible to work. Oh, so the e, both the L, uh, L2s, mm -hmm. the, the, the spouses of the L1A and the L1B, and the E1 and E2 spouses are eligible to get the unrestricted employment authorization, which can be a huge benefit um, for spouses who sometimes get bored out of their head and just hate staying in the U.S. without going out and working and earning money and being financially independent. Absolutely true. It's a, it's a huge benefit. Okay. So we have the E1 and E2 for treaty traders and treaty investors, but there's something called the E3 that was pretty comparatively more recent, Ashley, uh, that, that is apparently very similar to the H1B, but whom does it apply for? Which country citizens? And what are the differences between the E3 and the H's? Okay, sure. So the E3, it is for nationals of Australia. And in 2005, the U.S. Department of State actually expanded the definition of treaty trader investor to recognize this new treaty alien, which is the national of Australia, that are coming to the U.S. specifically to perform services in a specialty occupation. There is an annual numerical limit of 10,500 E3 visas, and one benefit is that the spouse may actually apply for an employment authorization document as well. Um, this category is a, another hybrid between an E-visa and an H-1B visa. Um, the definition of specialty occupation for the E-3 follows the same guidelines already developed by the USCIS for the H-1B category. So like the H-1B, the E-3 
applicant is required to file the labor condition application, or the LCA, with the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, one difference between the H-1B is that the E-3 is not submitted to the USCIS for pre-approval, but instead the applicant can prepare, or present themselves excuse me, at the consulate abroad and apply for the visa there. The application at the consulate should include the original LCA. Um, in certain circumstances, they will accept a copy of the LCA and evidence of the employee's credentials and the necessary specialty occupation information. So it's like the blanket L1 with the E3, similar, but with the LCA requirement. Mm -hmm. um, some other advantages is that there is no statutory limit. Um, generally, the visas are issued for the, the amount of time that, that is um, similar to, the, or that's specified in the LCA document. Typically, this is two years at a time, and it can be repeated, uh, extended repeatedly. So there's no, no time limit. Uh, for extensions. So they can't ask for the three years or they usually don't? I believe that the LCA only permits you to request two years at a time. Wow. So then that, the visa will be limited to the okay. two years. Okay, thank you Ashley. Um, so we're going to touch upon another category which is we call the R one, the religious visa category. I know we crack jokes sometimes because the U.S. really has a huge shortage of uh, religious workers, ministers, and Lord knows our souls could deal with a little bit of um, you know, um, having a priest um, guide us and mentor us to become better people, maybe more religious or more caring and more sort of community-oriented in some levels. But what is the, um, the, the, how does this R1 classification work, Chris? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many employers in today's conference call are necessarily churches or Christ, but sometimes even hospitals, uh, certain hospitals can look at if they're connected with like Catholic missionaries, they could consider it because I know a lot of people don't think they think, oh, it has to be religious, but it can be, for example, for nurses working in a religious hospital, it could very well end up getting the R1 even though they're working as nurses. So there's a lot of options. So, so Chris, just go over it a little bit so we, employers can look at consider that. Sure. The R1, uh, as you mentioned, is for religious workers, uh, non-immigrant religious workers in this case. Um, it's really very vital to uh, religious organizations that need to move people around a lot, uh, and specifically in this case to bring people to the U.S., uh, normally to fulfill religious duties. Uh, most commonly, uh, these are used for people in sort of traditional religious functions, ministers, monks, nuns, rabbis. Um, but they're also available to people who are uh, in professional religious occupations, uh, for example, religious broadcasters or translators can also get R1s. Um, to qualify for an R1, the main requirement is that the individual must have been a member of the religious organization for at least the past two years before filing. Uh, and this must be thoroughly documented, um, normally with a letter from, uh, from the head of their local religious organization uh, to prove this. Um, you also have to uh, prove that the person is qualified to fill the job that's, that's being offered. Um, n right now, you need to file uh, a petition for R1 status with USCIS. That's a change from uh, the procedure from many years where you could file directly at the consulate. That's not allowed anymore. Um, the maximum period that you, can, that you can stay in the United States in R1 status is five years. Um, and that's typically a three-year initial, initial grant of the R1 visa and a two-year extension after that. Family members uh, of the R1 are allowed to come to the U.S. in R2 status. 
Okay, and there's been a lot of issue of concerns about potential fraud, which is surprising. You would think that when you're in the religious worker category, you would be more concerned about the afterlife and doing the right thing. So what is this whole thing about potential fraud in the R category, Chris? Uh, there was a report uh, by the Department of Homeland Security several years ago that actually found enormous fraud in this category, um, you know, with, with churches filing far more R1 petitions than they could possibly have a need for. So they really, that had a very negative effect on, on applications in this category. Um, you have to submit a lot more evidence uh, to USCIS than was required before. And also, uh, USCIS, before they'll approve one of these, they now require a, an in-person site visit uh, at the petitioner's location, just basically to verify that the, the church or, or the religious organization actually has physical space to, to justify what they're requesting. Okay, thank you, Chris. Well, I know we're always very cognizant of the time, and we usually try to do it between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're about 40 minutes now. So um, I do want to thank each and every single one of you for having participated and joining Chris Drynan, Ashley Barbone, and myself, Sheila Murthy, in today's wonderful conference about various common non-immigrant options available for you to consider as employers, whether you're an ID consulting company, a hospital, a church, a professional a sports organization, a university, a hospital, just different, different options for different employers of different sizes, insurance companies, etc. The entire Murthy Law Firm team is dedicated to finding the most creative, appropriate, and least expensive option to help you succeed as an employer and to help and bring your most qualified employees come in in the appropriate visa classification. Again, today we only touched upon some of the common uh, non-immigrant classifications, but there are so many others that we did not touch upon, but we can go over those when we have a consultation and we discuss it with you. On behalf of all of us here at the entire Muthi Law Firm, we thank you and we look forward to helping you and your company continue to succeed. Have a wonderful rest of the day.